Los Angeles is an exciting place. And this excitement is so new when people first move here. The vastness of it all and the liveliness surrounding you is pretty amazing. And any barmaid can be a starmaid if she dances with the But then you delve a little deeper and realize it's not all glamorous. Welcome to The Labyrinth, a series of stories that intersect like passages in a maze. Can you find your way out? Unsustainable. Are you doing your part to save the planet today? Surely you've thought about it. All around you, there are signs urging you to recycle, to save water, to use less energy. In this episode, produced by Emma Horton, we ask, why do we feel so bad for not doing our part? And is it healthy to keep trying? In a city where climate change seems so evident, people become aware of their detrimental activity. I mean, it stares you in the face every time you leave your house. Take, for instance, the 405, the most congested freeway in the United States. All those gas-guzzling cars. Why can't people just take public transportation? Is a little inconvenience too much to ask for? You're on the way to this comedy show that your friend mentioned, but then you're stuck in traffic for an hour and a half, even though it's only five miles away. Ugh, why can't these people take the bus? And you found this amazing hike in the Santa Monica Mountains, overlooking the city and the ocean. But there's this line of brown smog near the horizon blocking your view. Again, the cars. Choose an electric model next time, at the very least. While you walk, you spot what looks like a bobcat scurrying away. You've heard they live in the mountains. How exciting. But then you remember a news report about how the unsustainable use of rat poisons turns out to be killing these bobcats and their cousins, the mountain lions. Can people please stop poisoning everything? You find yourself waiting until the sun sets to look at the dazzling lights. To escape this internalized guilt of human crowding and pollution and poison. And so you're looking over the city at the Griffith Observatory, and it's gorgeous. Millions of lights twinkling at you. You look up to the sky to see the stars, and surprise, they're blocked by 10 million people's lights. Only a lone moon and a few of its friends. Imagine a world with all sustainable and public transportation. Pretty nice, right? Well, actually, the public transportation in LA is terrible, and everything is miles away. It's not like San Francisco, where you could walk 
And it's not like New York where you can take the subway. People need to get places. And when the city won't give you a transportation system to get to your job, what are you left with? A gas-guzzling car. And why not electric? Costs, long-range anxiety, and a lack of availability. So you can see, the picture isn't as clear as we're taught it is. We are taught that it is our own individual responsibility to fight climate change and engage in sustainable actions. We are taught that if we fail to change our habits or actions, then it is our fault. Which can lead to this intense feeling of shame when we're unable to meet these incredibly high and impossible standards. Shame has its place. When everyone else is doing something good, and one person is doing something bad, shame might be an effective tool to stop them. But when it comes to sustainability, we're all shaming each other for something we might not be able to change. Shaming individuals seems like it is encouraging sustainability. But it is really relieving large corporations and governments from enacting any real change. Let me tell you a story about Los Angeles that plays into this. LA has a tricky relationship with water because the city is in a drought. And rather than looking at larger infrastructural ways to save water, the focus primarily turns to a movement to remove individual lawns and switch to more drought-resistant plants, especially native ones amongst homeowners. At the peak of the water shortage, what is called drought shaming amongst the wealthy was especially prevalent. Anywhere else, these lush green lawns would be the envy of neighbors. But in drought-stricken California, they can be a social stigma. Where there's water, there's waste. Californians now turning to social media to call out perfect strangers for water waste. Even if that threat is enough of being shamed to make someone change, it's worth it. Welcome to the world of drought shaming, where apps, hashtags, and water vigilantes rat out wasters online. Why are we watering this in the middle of nowhere? Tony Corcoran posts videos on Twitter and YouTube and emails the worst ones to water officials. He says he's collected hundreds of examples, including in this Beverly Hills neighborhood. Shame can work in some cases, but only for those who can afford to turn shame into responsibility. For instance, listen to this private architect describe the extreme efforts of a very wealthy Los Angeles client who removed her lawn in order to prevent unnecessary water usage. This client was very patient. It's hard to get people to do this. We dug up all the lawn, watered it, grew it back, dug it up again, and then we blacked it out. Then we laid newspaper on top. This person was like willing to go all the way to get a perfect native grass meadow and make sure none of her lawn came back. These days, 
Shame is instilled at a very young age with the goal of creating sustainable values in the next generation. They're even teaching elementary students songs about how we can save the earth. This clip is of me performing with my first grade class. Let's all reduce, reuse, recycle. Imagine a world where there was no waste. Imagine no litter, no giant garbage mountain in the ocean. Beautiful, right? Well, unfortunately, recycling is not going to make that happen. Let's first try to get manufacturers to stop selling us things in flimsy plastic bags. And anyways, only 9% of our recycling is actually recycled. It's funny, I sang that song when I was seven, and now over a decade later, I'm still thinking about it every time I use a plastic bottle. That's what shaming does for people. It sticks with them. I'm sure my teachers did not intend to make me feel guilty for the rest of my life about sustainable decisions. They were just trying to instill a responsibility towards our planet, which is a good thing. And they thought it was cute. Shaming doesn't always have to be intentional, but nonetheless, it's a big weight to put on a first grader. And it is a big weight to carry around with you. This isn't to give you this overwhelming sense of helplessness and dread. That's not the intention. Please keep recycling. The purpose is just to ask yourself, why is so much of the attention on individual actions and behaviors when we have conversations about the climate and responsibility? While individual actions are important, it's difficult to make the right decisions when the whole infrastructure of the United States and the economy is against you. And so why shame individuals in the first place if we cannot even reach most of the goals we are supposed to strive for? Is shame really that effective? I mean, when I go to the grocery store and buy plastic bags instead of Tupperware, do I feel bad about it? Of course I do. But I still buy the plastic bags. Shaming only works to a certain extent. It encourages sustainable behavior, but it also just has consumers living in a state of guilt for actions that are entirely out of reach. This whole issue of responsibility on the individual and a lack of responsibility from larger systems stems from the fact that sustainability and the economy are intertwined. It's impossible to separate them. Take a very mundane example. Like any city, LA has rats, and lots of them. It comes with the territory, or rather, it comes with building cities on the territory. To deal with this, pest control companies place tiny little black bait boxes around the city filled with poisons. The issue with these poisons is that they travel through the food chain because they do not immediately kill the little critters, 
but rather let them live to spread the poisons further. This is obviously detrimental to local wildlife and allows for poisons to be perpetuated throughout the environment. There's been much pushback on this pest control method, with many residents insisting on more environmentally friendly options. A pest specialist at UCLA explains this relationship perfectly. They want to save every animal on the planet. It's we're trying to kill the world uh-huh. until they're in your house. Yeah. And I don't care if you burn my house to the ground, get rid of the rat. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge you run into. Of, no, no, don't. You shouldn't be using this bait. You shouldn't be using this product. You're killing everything. Yeah. I have a rat. What can you do to get rid of it? Well, you guys voted to say I can't do this. So right. Yeah. I'm going to sit here and ask ants to leave. Okay. So it's individual actions to blame. We, as individuals, are responsible for polluting the environment with poison. As, as pest control professionals, our challenge has become more and more difficult because the willingness to pay for the alternative solutions has not caught up with the alternative solutions. Wait, so now he's saying it's the companies in charge of the alternative options that are to blame. That we're willing to pay but corporations haven't provided us a favorable option for our pocketbooks. Let's see why that is. There's still no, there's no economical way to get the same results out of a non-toxic solution as there is a bait. Because as, as large companies, HOAs, and I'm sure the campus has the same concern, they have a lot of liability that they have to, to, to manage. One flare-up happens and we yeah. get sued to death. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's one of those things where it is just perception. And so our battle is to provide something that our customers want. And I'm not afraid to say that. I run a business, so I, I'm here to make money. I will happily sell you something that's non-toxic. I will happily sell you whatever you want. Yeah. You just have to be willing to pay for it. And it has to work. In sum, shaming individuals about their lack of recycling, excessive water use, gas-guzzling cars, poisons, and more helps businesses and the government. Because sustainability in the economy will never be separated, so they'd rather you feel shamed into hurting your own pocketbook than theirs, because their sole purpose is to make money. There's not a simple answer to this whole story of responsibility, blame, and shaming. But it's important to address the complexity of the situation so we can stop shaming the consumer and start questioning the larger establishments at hand. I'm going to offer you a choice. Is sustainable action simply an individual problem? and the challenge is to get all individuals to change their behavior? Put those solar panels on your roof. Buy that Tupperware. Invest in an electric car. Or is this something governments and corporations need to do? And we need to start shaming them so they make the necessary changes. Because I, for one, don't have the money to live this entirely sustainable lifestyle. And most people don't. But is there no third option? What about the gray area? Is there no option where we share this shame and therefore also this responsibility to our planet?
I'm not sure exactly what it would really mean to share responsibility for the fate of the environment. Maybe it has to do with how we relate to each other. To stop shaming each other for things we can't change. Maybe then we will engage in sustainable actions simply because we care and not have to live with this guilt. And how we relate to governments and corporations. To start becoming more invested activists rather than waiting on the world to change, as John Mayer puts it. Anyways, maybe next time you're on a hike and you look out towards the horizon at a line of brown smog, don't internally cuss out all the people who have gas cars or don't take public transportation. Just take a step back and realize maybe you don't have the whole story yet. This episode of The Labyrinth Podcast was produced by Emma Horton, audio engineer Adam Wand. Research by The Labyrinth team, including Jessica Lynch, Chase Alexander, Soledad Altrudi, Aditi Halba, Spencer Robbins, Bradley Cardozo, Sarah Zemer, Niaz Sassoonian, and Emma Horton. Art and design by Amisha Gadani. Special thanks to all the people who've helped with this research who remain anonymous here, and also to the Laboratory for Environmental Narrative Strategies for collaborating on this podcast series. Music used in this podcast includes Hooray for Hollywood by Doris Day, and of course, seven-year-old Emma Horton singing Reduce, Reuse, Recycle. The Labyrinth Project was funded by the UCLA Sustainable LA Grand Challenge Program and the UCLA Institute for Society and Genetics. Additional audio notes, background information, and credits can be found on our website, labyrinth.garden. Hey there, this is your friendly labyrinth expert. Just so you know, there's another passageway that leads away from here to another story that is strangely similar. Everyone in a city has to live with something. Lana and her family were stunned to see a mountain lion on the ring video prowling around in front of their Hollywood Hills home. The big cat is none other than P-22. But when your home is surrounded by barriers like freeways and private property, there isn't anywhere to go. Which is why we are building a freeway for the lions. In order to live with lions in LA, we need to give them their own lane. If you want to follow that passageway, 
It's the episode called The Lion and the Rat. Did you bring thread? Does this maze have a monster? Find out. Good luck. Good luck.